This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. Cyborg, concentrate fire on Luthor while I pull down some artillery. Hello and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. Before we get going, it's time for your weekly dose of nudging. If you're watching this on a platform where you can like us, please hit that like button. It really does make a difference. And really, if you like us, what's the harm in subscribing? That way you can keep in the loop on all the cool projects that we're working on. When you get right down to it, my career would be nothing without a comic book and my passion for it inspiring me. In my case, it was Tales from the Crypt or any of the horror titles published by William F. Gaines and EC Comics. Bill Gaines's other stroke of genius, Mad Magazine, was my introduction to comedy, satire, parody, and an all-around bad attitude towards the powers that be. Because Joel Silver and Dick Donner are two most prominent executive producers on Crypt were based at Warner Brothers, and because the DC Universe, also called Warner Brothers Home, we experienced a fair amount of crossover with that universe versus, say, the Marvel Universe. For instance, Dick Donner made Superman Man of Steel starring Christopher Reeve. Christopher then appeared on an episode of Tales from the Crypt because there were relationships. Later, of course, Gil would produce Superman Returns and Constantine, another DC Universe movie for Warner Brothers. Interestingly, while Gil and I were doing Crypt, we partnered for almost a year on a TV project with Stan Lee, god of the Marvel Universe. Alas, that TV project came to nothing. As did the Thor pilot I wrote and was supposed to produce for Avi Arad at Marvel and the UPN precursor to the CW. That was back in 2002. God, it sucks to be ahead of the curve. Comic books and graphic novels borrowed much of their storytelling style from the movies. Then movie making went and borrowed some of the storytelling style back. Synergy is super dynamic. Our guest today, Gregory Novick, grew up a comic book fan on steroids. He landed his dream job working at DC Comics, helping them navigate movies, TV, and the internet. After a decade with the DC Universe giving it life, Gregory took his unique skill set to sci-fi for a little bit. We'll talk about sci-fi and trade some sci-fi stories. These days, Gregory's got a number of really cool projects. He's going to tell you all about them. But it all started with comic books and a passion that, well, it seized hold of him at the jump. Well, we all know what that can be like, don't we? You're from New York City. I am born and raised. That's right. Which, which part of? Uh... Uh, I was on 61st, like on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I went to uh, Lycée Francais for 10 years because my mother was French. And then I went to Bronx Science. So that was a transition. And then, uh, and then I left New York and went to Bennington College in Vermont. So that was a whole other transition. Truly, truly, <laughs> truly. Now, uh, okay, as as someone, all right, I'll, I'll just, I'll give you my, for instance, uh, I grew up in an upper middle class Jewish suburb outside of Baltimore, and a very Jewish bubble. And I went to Vassar, and I suddenly dropped into a world of wasps. Yes. Wow, culture shock. Now you grew up in New York City, so you the world, you know, you, it was a different kind of cocoon. Correct. What was the culture shock 
at Bennington for you? The culture shock at Bennington for me was that, you know, I mean, I, you know, coming from, from having gone to school in the Bronx, right, going to Bronx Science, right, kids from all over the city and every kind of conceivable stripe, you know, and at that time we're talking about the, you know, early and mid 80s. And so you had sort of the beginnings of the goth scene and, and certainly the rap scene and then, you know, and then and then the kids who were into electronic music. And it was almost by, you know, somewhat by neighborhood, somewhat by background. You know, there were the metal kids out of Astoria. And, you know, was, uh, and then you get to Bennington and it's predominantly artists, uh, which was great for me. I mean, there's a reason I went there, obviously. And and it's predominantly people who are just absolutely finding a way to just be themselves in the most kind of you know extreme way and that was you know and, and but the biggest culture shock for me which is kind of what i wanted right i thought i thought i was going to go to ucla that had been my thing i'm in bronx science i did a summer program at ucla a film and tv program when i was a junior in high school and i was like this is too big for me and I, and bronx science is a huge school we had like 900 kids in my graduating class and there's you know, when I got to Bennington, there were 600 kids in the entire school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and teeny so that tiny. <laughs> teeny tiny. So that for me was like the biggest thing. And all of a sudden you're in classes, you know, with six other people and your teacher, and which that is what I wanted. And that's awesome. why I was there. So awesome. was, yeah, it was it was a fantastic experience. Cool. So, so you really you got something out of, out of being at Bennington. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Changed my life in a lot of ways. And uh, thrilled. Yeah. To yeah, I, I feel the same way about my my time at Vassar. I don't know that Gil feels the same way about his time at Syracuse. I hated those four years. They're the worst four years of my life. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Syracuse, uh, your, your class size was six. Mine was 6,000. Right. right. <laughs> and and I was taking classes that only men were taking for the most part. So And I was living in a dorm with all football players. And so I never met women. Right. <laughs> and so this here's this party school. Everyone's telling me, oh, my God, you go to Syracuse. Wow. And I didn't I didn't meet anybody. I didn't have dates. It was awful. That is unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel for you. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, all right. <laughs> well, now that we've had the yeah. the, the sad part come out of, it. of the episode, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask a, a dog question. Now, sure. you, you, you want to go to UCLA film TV, I assume. Mm -hmm. So there was already. Yeah, I mean, my I grew up, my father, you know, my father was a film editor oh, and okay. and had worked on international movies. He spoke nine languages, and and so so he, you know, so I kind of grew up in the cutting room watching him, you know, do you know, like with his little grease pen on the moviola, you know, and learning how to splice and all that stuff. And and I was always a storyteller, like I, you know, I kind of knew very early on that I was a writer in some way, shape, or form, and you know comic books though yeah and suddenly dots connected well your dad was a film film editor correct and literally you're looking at the frames really mm -hmm. it's a frame yeah. by frame and really you learned early on that movies get made in the cutting room oh my father who was, was no uh <laughs> uh let, let's let, let's say he, he was very clear about wh who he felt the storyteller of a movie was <laughs> he didn't think it was the director didn't think it was the actors or the writers as far as he was concerned it was the editor who figured out how to tell the story Woody, uh, in a lot of ways in my experience that's true yeah yeah hey yeah. Woody, Woody Allen got the Oscar for Annie Hall but Ralph Rosenblum really made the movie made the movie no yeah. question yeah absolutely of course right and uh and, and my father would actually point to that example various times over the years 
And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, it didn't exactly stand him in good stead, you know, because <laughs> he tended to piss off a lot of directors and producers who wouldn't work with him again, but he saved their movies. Gosh, the truth um, hurts, doesn't it? It does. It does. He wasn't subtle about him. He was Russian and, you know, by, you know, by birth and, and, uh, and didn't suffer fools very well. And, you know, but in any case, so I, I grew up kind of watching him in the cutting room and watching him do stuff. And, and, and I got into, um, you know, fantasy and science fiction very early. That was like my escape, you know, like, I think I, and in fact, it's kind of my dad's fault. I'd seen the cartoon version of The Hobbit on TV when I was like, you know, nine or 10 years old. And I was telling my dad about it. And he's like, oh, if you like that. And he goes to the bookshelf and pulls down Fellowship of the Ring. He goes, take a look at this. <laughs> and that was it. That was done. My days of Hardy Boys and whatever were over. And uh, and and that was it. And I was off to the races. And then when I went around 10 or 11, 11, I started seriously getting into comic books. I'd always read them. But all of a sudden, I, I discovered X-Men and, you know, and for me growing up in New York and Manhattan being a Marvel, I was a Marvel kid because it all took place. You know, the Avengers Mansion was three blocks from my house and I would walk around the city looking for the Baxter building. I'm like, maybe that's the Baxter building, you know, uh, to me, like the D.C. stuff was actually um, always a bit removed. You know, it was a bit more fantastical. It was a bit more over the top, it was a bit more black and white. Metro I like Metropolis you know, is, uh, is, yeah. is, it, is it any town? Exactly. I mean, it's theoretically some version of Chicago, right? But it's, yeah, you know, and... and it's uh, got and big Goth shoulders. Got, exactly, exactly. And Gotham, you know, you're like, is it New York? What the hell is it? You know, um, and, uh, and and so I, I gravitated to that stuff really early. And then, um, and I actually thought I was going to be a writer. That was sort of my intent, you know, or at least professionally, you know. And um, and so I went to, when I went to college, having convinced my parents I was going to major in business at Bennington, <laughs> which lasted about a week um you know i did uh i did is is bennington known as a place where business careers are launched from not not uh with any consistency no and the econ teacher was an absolute socialist you know? <laughs> you know but hey all the credit to you you, you sold it to your parents they went oh, okay yeah. the business degree at bennington that that'll be worth something uh on wall street somewhere exactly exactly so that lasted about a week and i got into you know doing creative writing and and uh and, and theater as well and i always knew in somehow instinctively i was going to end up in la and hollywood whether it was making movies or writing movies or writing books i didn't know i just knew that i wanted to be part of the process the one thing i did know which perhaps in retrospect was was erroneous but at the time the one thing i felt was i didn't want to start off in post-production i didn't want to be i didn't even really want to be in physical production you know, because I had done I had done PA work as a teenager. I'd been on a bunch of different productions, and and I I liked it and I enjoyed it. But from my perspective, at that age, and this is this is an attitude that's changed a bit over the years. But at that age, I felt well, production is really just the execution of all the decisions that have already been made, and everyone's suffering all the time. All I heard on production is these motherfuckers. And what the hell are they trying to do to us? And who decided to do this? And why are we doing that? And no one in production ever seemed to have any control over the thing including the directors that I'd seen. And I was like, I want to be on the part where I can make the decisions. Like, can't I be the one making the decisions? Because that's the cool part to me, you know? And so I, I ended up ultimately working my way up through the executive ranks and the, and the producing ranks. And, uh, you know, for good or for ill, you know? <laughs> uh, along the way, now your path is really interesting because... <clears throat> 
just some of the, the places where you landed. Uh, there's some perhaps some intertwining history that I'm really curious about. You you were at Silver Pictures for a little bit. Yeah. At Silver Pictures TV. Uh, yeah. So I, I had a, this weird thing that's happened in my career where oftentimes I've been the counterpoint at a company. So I'll be the TV guy at a featured company or I'll be the feature person at a TV company or I'll be the guy that actually reads books at a comic book company. You know. <laughs> And, uh, and, and so it's always been this kind of odd juxtaposition that I've had uh, in, at, at various points. And I ended up having this this career where I've been in like five or six different jobs where I've started a new division from scratch that didn't exist before and built it up into something until, invari until invariably somebody destroys it for whatever you know whim of the day. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That, that that does seem to have happened. But uh, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll get to all that. Let's, yeah. How was your How was your time? At Silver Pictures, I was just about to ask that. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you can you can see why I look so much older than I actually am. Uh, the thing about it, I learned a lot working at Silver, and in some ways, discounting sort of the Joel of it all, in some ways, it was where I was happiest professionally because I was able to actually just be a producer. Right. You know, like I would, you know, projects would come in. I would like them. I would develop them. We would go sell them. If we got lucky, we would go make them, you know, and then I would be on set. And I and I, you know, like to think of myself, as, you know, as you guys know, there's all sorts of different kinds of producers. Right. And, and you know, the, the who knows, you know, I'm sure you guys, what the hell does a producer do? And well, there's a million answers to that question. Mm -hmm. But I always considered myself sort of the best version of me professionally. Is, is that real creative producer who's what my answer to that question is well the producer is the only person who's there at the very beginning when they find the idea and says this is something worth this is a story worth telling and they're there at the very end right you know when it's in the theaters or on tv and they're reading the ratings and they're figuring out what do we do next and they're the everyone else comes in and does their job and then leaves right writers come in the actors come in post-production comes in physical director everyone comes in and at some point leaves the real producer is the only person who's there from soup to nuts, from beginning to end, delivering the entire thing, and they're there for every piece of it. And in, and, in, in the old days, would they, would they have called that an impresario? Exactly, right? You know, it's... it's uh, um, P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, or, you know, who am I... Th I'm, uh, what's his name? The producer husband of Elizabeth Taylor, whose name just went out of my head. Oh, um, Michael Todd. Michael Todd, right? Sure. You know those those kinds of guys. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Oh yes, impresario is, is almost too small a word to. Right. You know, you know Michael Todd. <laughs> but he died in a plane crash, right? It, it would take a plane crash to kill him. Otherwise, I, I don't know. He might have been immortal. For sure, right? I mean, yeah, I remember like you know David Brown is still doing stuff at ninety eight or whatever the hell it was, mm -hmm. and uh, so so yeah, so I, I yeah, pri so silver. So I learned, so I was, I, I liked the job at Silver. Uh, the thing with Joel, you know, so I got to back up a little bit because a few years before I worked at Silver, I was at a company called Gaumont, a French, French company, Gaumont, right? Sure, and, sure, sure. And I, sure. and I was the LA develop, young baby LA development executive. And, uh, and there was another, there was an executive there, uh, who pushed me, she was my boss and she pushed me to such a point. It was got to this break, like she was you know, she would find your buttons, right? She was one of those people that would sort of lash out and find your buttons. And she pushed me to such a point where I was like, I have a decision to make. I either have to like just break and I just become this person's creature or it's go to hell. What's, what's the worst thing she can do? Fire me? I'll get another job. 
I was young then. And, and, and I was like, screw that. And so I sort of stood up to her and, and, and what that did was that really set me up quite well for dealing with Joel because I had already dealt with the nightmare person who likes to find and push your buttons. And, um, and I think, you know, my philosophy, like, I think Joel's a brilliant guy and I think he's creatively has phenomenal instincts mm. and and he's one of the greatest storytellers to ever, you know, hang around with, right? I mean, every story ends up being about himself, but still great stories. Um, you know, and and so from that standpoint, there's a lot to sort of admire and and learn from and, uh, you know, sort of just sort of soak in, and particularly at that point in my career. But what I think I decided with Joel is that he likes to either get you when you're really young and are just learning the business or try and get you much later in your career where he can rehabilitate you. And in both cases, he kind of controls you. But if you're there kind of mid-career when stuff is, when you kind of know, you're kind of feeling your oats and you kind of know what you want to do and you have maybe, you know, a little enough knowledge to be dangerous, but not enough to know how dangerous it can be, that's not a good time to be working for Joel because you're just <laughs> going to do this all the time because he wants control and the thing about Joel that I, I learned is that he, at that, when I got, by the time I worked for him, so this is, I mean, the, the irony was I, I closed my deal on September 10th, 2001, as my attorney was flying to Toronto for the film festival. Ooh. <laughs> Next Ooh. day, the world ends, right? You know, which was, and, and the day after that, I'm sitting in Steve Perlman's office at the Warner Brothers lot, and we're all just, you know, still shell-shocked and trying to figure out, are we even in a business? Like, what do we do now? Yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. so that, was, and I'll never forget, you know, driving in for my first day at Warner Brothers, and it's the day after 9-11, and the line going up Barham from the Warner lot is all the way back up to the 101, because mm -hmm. they were, you know, checking every car. God, yeah, I was yes, coming on the, the line. Mania. Sure, sure, right? sure. Oh, God. So yes, was... we were all targets. Yes. They, yeah. Who are they going to come for next? Oh, they're coming for Hollywood for sure. <laughs> well, at least you didn't approach the studio figuring, oh, my God, Joel, Joel must have something to do with this. He's making sure <laughs> I don't bring anything that I shouldn't be bringing onto the lot. <laughs> no, so I, I think what I, but so by the time I started working for him then, my perception was that at that point, features it was all commerce to him you know yeah, yeah, like he had sort of lost the creative joy of it what you know it was all commerce it was like how much is everything's he transactional yeah. everything's transactional what do we get putting in production get it made get it made where are my fees you know yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah yeah um you know which was unfortunate because you know as i said he had phenomenal has phenomenal creative instincts you know but he but he's sort of like you know, and there's many, and we've seen this, there's many examples of this, right? But there's somebody who's really good at what they do, right? Be it a writer or a producer. And and then they sort of step away a little bit and they're not, so so if it's a writer, you know, you sit there and you're, you're in front of your computer and you're typing away every day and you're figuring out every note and you're kind of doing this all day long right, and figuring it out. But then when you step away and you're kind of supervising another writer, it's like you kind of lose perspective on, you know, what that really means. And so it's like, oh, just do this and do this and it'll work great. And the writer's like, yeah, but I know when I pull that thread, all these other things are going to get affected and you're not seeing it. Right. And I think Joel was a bit like that, where he was kind of, you know, uh, producing by extension. Right. Mm -hmm. And kind of not really paying attention. And and then and then and then, you know, and then what would happen is 
I think because it had all become commerce to him and transactional, he could only really pay attention in crisis mode. So you basically, he would let everything get to a point because, you know, he was the ultimate arbiter. That was the other thing with Joel. You weren't, you know, you might've had your little fiefdom, but at the end of the day, you, you, you paid homage up top and, and he, and, and you could only go so far with whatever you were doing before you had to go to Joel. And the only time that Joel would actually pay attention to you is when he said, Joel, I need an answer because otherwise they're pulling it and we're not getting paid or they're not making the show or they're not going forward. And he goes, ah, oh, what do you need? You know, well, well, what did you fuck up this time? You know, though yeah. I didn't fuck up anything. I've been waiting for you for three weeks. This is you know? so much your your relationship with, with him too, Gil. It's like, it, it's... Uh... You know, Greg, I wish I had this conversation with you about uh, two years before I met Joel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just remember, I'll never forget this image I had once where... I was standing in his office and this was, this was the, the refurbished, you know, Frank Sinatra office with the ostrich freaking, you know, couches and the, and uh, I forget what the, what the, what the rug was made of. I remember they had that rug with all those kind of wild leather strands, but it was some, it wasn't leather. It was some kind of crazy rare animal that had been slaughtered. Um, but uh, you know, and then he had that that Egyptian chair, which I think he must have mm -hmm. been smuggled out of Egypt that no one could sit in because it turned out, oh, it's like a thousand years old or something. But in any case, um, I'll never forget standing in his office and I'm waiting, right? And I look around and there's literally the head of every one of his departments, right? It was me, it was casting, it was features, it was it was the the CFO, it was you know the the one production person, it was his personal you know person from the house, right? And and we're all standing there waiting because everyone has an emergency that they need an answer to before we get to the end of the day. And it's like a Friday. And he's sitting there at his like little side table with his one of his assistants, calmly going through the mail and saying, Yeah, I call him back. No, I don't need this, you know, for like 25 minutes while we're all waiting there. And I said, There's like, oh, this is this is basically how, you know, we're we're just all of his ministers and he's the emperor. You know, like he's the liege lord and, and this is how he likes it, you know, because the thing about Joel is that on the one hand, he didn't really like to pay you. Right. He didn't really want to pay you. But on the other hand, he could be very generous, you know, but he wanted but he didn't want it contractual. That was a thing. Right. He had, he had I don't think any issue necessarily with giving somebody a big bonus or giving them. But he wanted to be the one to control that. Mm -hmm. If it was in the contract, he resented it. So true. So true. I, I your your analysis of Joel is is so wow. I, I, I've got goosebumps. Oh, well, I but, don't know. I, but, I, but, I, 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 you know, I look back at that time very fondly, even though it was painful as hell. You know, I have very similar feelings about Joel, and you know, hey, the guy in essence fired me and changed the course of my my life at one point. I, and yet over the course of time, uh, look, the, the man is his own worst enemy in a thousand different ways, but I have come, yeah, I, I've come to appreciate the genius. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, the absolute, yeah, the... I mean, I learned a couple of big lessons from Joel. One yeah. was keep the studio spending, whatever it is. Yeah. He's like, they want a blue dog, give them a blue dog. They want a yellow dog, give them a yellow. Keep them spending until you're in production, then do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> that was his attitude. From from a creative point of view, I wanted to come back to the word generosity yeah. because that that was 
it's not the general it's not a generosity of spirit it's a generosity of commerce mm-hmm. and i did not recognize his generosity of commerce at the time uh, otherwise i would have i might have taken better i would have taken advantage of the offers being made to me when he made them right. and perhaps why my non-responsiveness to to offers along the way resulted in my being incredibly dismissible and, you know, yeah well when he figured out he couldn't when he figured out he couldn't own you then he didn't want you yeah and and, and i if, if if i'd only known i i i would have dangled a bit more <laughs> you know but i was young stupid uh you <coughs> excuse me after joel you seem to have gone right to another ego 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 maniac jay michael Oh, just Straczynski? You mean on on uh, Jeremiah? Well, that was yeah. actually that was before Silver. That, oh, that was, was before, before Silver. That was before uh, Silver. Oh, so so you were and, oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, so you had gone from J. Michael to Joel. Well, I'd gone from Platinum Studios. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd yeah. left. I'd I'd left Platinum in two thousand, and I was kind of gotcha. consulting to them. And we were made we made Jeremiah during that time, and then I went to Silver. I got gotcha. after Silver. I went to DC. The thing with yeah, Joe Straczynski, you know. That's one, you know, that's one of those cautionary producing tales, and I might as well tell you a bit here. So Jeremiah was is a hugely popular European graphic novel series, been going on, still going on, I think. Hmm. At that at that time, there were fifteen or seventeen volumes, and it was a it was a you know post apocalyptic kind of road warrior feel, but with teenagers, and and the idea being that every you know which we've seen this idea before, but the idea being that all the adults had died in a plague, and so a generation of kids had grown up, and now they're in their teens and twenties, and what does the world look like? And I, I would work. I was working at Platinum Studios, which at that time represented a ton of European graphic novels and 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 properties, and that was one of them. And so I spent a number of years putting it together, right? As we do, right? We find a piece of, as producers, we find a piece of material that we love, and we convince everyone else how great it is and why it should be made and why audiences will respond. And and uh, and I got it to to Joe Dante and his um and his oh his producing partner whose name just escapes me, but is a wonderful guy. Um, which I'll, I'll come back to me and um, no uh, and they they fell for it and and we got we got Joe Dante involved and he was attached and I you know obviously huge fan of his and and I don't know if you guys I think you guys have both worked with them maybe not but you know couldn't you know love lo- such a lovely amazing human Joe Dante really just a wonderful guy and um and and he came along to every meeting and was totally dedicated and we went through a couple of different writers ultimately we landed at MGM they bought it they loved it and they said okay you know here are the three writers that we want one of them being but we really want joe straczynski to do it so i went out and i lobbied him and i got him involved and i brought in joe and i got him to you know introduce him to joe straczynski to joe dante and have all these lovely meetings we get the series order right first thing that happens is before i know it joe dante is gone because somehow Straczynski engineered that. Um, can't say too much about that. And then I'm trying to, and then we, you know, we hire Russell Mulcahy to, to, to direct the pilot, which uh, I was like, I was like, that's great. I mean, I'm a huge Highlander fan and, you know, and, 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 you know, Russell's a little insane, but certainly talented. And, um, uh, and I was like, okay, great. And I'm trying to like, you know, book my flight for, you know, for Vancouver and Toronto. I think it was Vancouver. I think it was Toronto initially. And, um, uh, and all of a sudden I'm not, like, I'm not getting responses, you know, and I'm a co and I'm, I'm, I'm a co-producer on the show. Like I'm a, still, this is like one of my first things, but my boss was an EP 
right? Um, this guy, Scott Rosenberg, not the screenwriter, but the, but the comic book one. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and he's having the same issue, like, you know, but, but he was, you know, he was a, like, he, we're not getting responses from MGM. And then finally I called Joe and I'm like, what's going on, Joe? I'm trying to, I got to book my flight. I got to be there for the pilot. He goes, well, I don't need you there. So what do you mean you don't need me there? It's my show. He's like, no, 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 I don't need you there. I, I'll make the show. It's fine. And, and he basically blew me out of my own show that I had spent, you know, four years putting together. Unfortunately, I didn't have, um, and by the way, it happened to my boss too. It wasn't like he got to go see the pilot get shot. Um, and I, you know, that was, that was one of the early producing lessons I learned, you know, it's a good one to learn early on. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, thinking through uh, your situation with Joel and my situation with Joel, I think the reason I survived as long as I did with Joel was that I would be on that line of needing to speak to him as well. And then I wouldn't stay. I would give him a half hour. And then if he, if I couldn't get to him, I would say, this is not good use of my time. And I would make the decision and I would move ahead. And then right. later on, when he found out about it, he would he would say to me, how could you can't do that? And I said, I did it. Yeah. You can't do that. I said, well, fuck you. I did it. And it's done. And if you're not going to answer me, that's what's going to happen. And I think that's what's really enabled me to survive because I wouldn't stay on that line waiting and waiting and waiting. And I would just say, OK, I'll do it. Yeah. And then we got into issues about, you know, you know, that and then. I wasn't kissing the ring, but because I got it done, I think he was sort of happy that I he didn't have to deal with it any any longer. I, I think that's the thing. It's like you know, the the more you get, I mean, you know, I didn't say this. One of his one of one of the one of my colleagues there said this at the time. Uh, said that uh, Joel woke up every morning absolutely confident in the fact that he needed nobody else. They could do it all by himself if he needed to. It was just easier to have people around to do stuff, mm -hmm. but that he needed no one. <laughs> you know that that yeah. no one brought any intrinsic skill set experience or value that he actually needed to do anything yeah <laughs> you know i know the story the story about you being you know fired off your own show is mm -hmm. is uh i've heard many stories like that from a yeah. lot of different people where they spent a lot of energy and time and dedication only to bring in a director or an executive producer and all of a sudden you know the, the knife yeah. goes in yeah, I, I wish I could say that was the only time that happened to me, but I did have I did have a little bit of satisfaction on that one. I mean, it was it was small and bittersweet, but it still made me very happy. So we're actually at the premiere of the show, right? And uh, and it actually, you know, I should say it starred Luke Perry and Malcolm Jamal Warner, um, who could not have been more professional. Like just you know, I mean, Luke Perry when he passed was so sad because like man, he's one of those guys that was like just I I admire actors in particular who freaking show up, <laughs> do the job, do it well, listen, are personable, are real, and don't and then go home, and then they come back the next day and they show up on time. I mean, it's like it, you know, people who don't work in this business don't understand like how rare it is and how like how valuable it is and why some people will wonder like why do certain actors why are they always in everything. You know what? Because they're professionals. They do they their show damn up. job. <laughs> they really, job. truly, they understand what it is and what it isn't for fuck's right. sake. Yeah. So anyway, so they were great. So we're at the premiere, right? And it's the reception after, and it's at the Directors Guild on on Sunset, and we're all in the main lobby, and they're doing one of those receptions, right? And then from a and I and I'm and I'm standing at sort of in the middle, and there's Joe Straczynski, literally about six or eight feet away from me, studiously ignoring me, 
right? And, and you know, listening to all his well-wishers. And from across the room, I hear, Gregory, it was you! It was you! And, like, this joyful, like, you know. And I look over, and there's six-foot-three Sam Haskell, you know, head of William Morris Television at the time, in his, you know, light tan, double-breasted suit with this huge smile on his face. He goes, I was sitting there! And he's screaming it from like shouting it from across the thing saying I was sitting there saying who pitched this to me I could remember we were sitting at the Carlton Terrace in Cannes three years ago and it was you Gregory ah oh, you pitched this oh I'm so happy this happened for you how fantastic you know and everyone's staring at Sam and they're staring at me and he's walking his way towards me and then I could see and I look and there's Drosters and he still hasn't turned but he is red his entire face is just pink and, and that felt good. Uh, so Sam Haskell in my book <laughs> can do is no a wrong. prince. He's a prince. I'll 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 ice the the, the Joe Straczynski bit with my own mm -hmm. run in with him. I got hired to do an episode of Jeremiah. Oh wow! Uh, uh, see see how involved I was. <laughs> Sam Egan uh, had taken over running the show. Really, the the day to day, you know, mm -hmm. scut work. Right. Uh, and he hired, I got hired to write an episode and I wrote the episode and just at the last stages of it, there was, I think half the money was due still. Uh, Joe Straczynski personally called me and said, here's what I'd like you to do for me. In other words, this is what you're doing for me. My assistant is now your co-writer. And that was it. Wow. She did not. Oh, right. Her name is on the script and she yeah. got half the money. And I got, I guess there were some benefits that she needed because she got them. Right. <clears throat> and that was that. And I got a call from Sam. I think it was just before, just after apologizing profusely for what was about to happen. And he said he, he, something to the effect of in, in this world, in, in, in the J. Michael Straczynski world, this is how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, that's not the first time I've heard that from various showrunners who have done things like that, oh, you man. know, over the years, and it's, uh, you know, yeah. So, there are there are horrible, horrible people in this business, and they're mm -hmm. creative. Look, yeah, Joe Straczynski is a very creative, creative, talented I, guy. I, I've never, I would never impinge his talent or impute. You know, he is mm -hmm. he is a smart, creative, talented guy. Uh, a great storyteller. Great storyteller has done some great work. Uh, I think his, he his problem. To... Yeah, well, his problem is, as Joel Silver once told me, mm -hmm. your people skills are shit. <laughs> now, and on that, we'll we'll transition away from a uh, horrible horribleness into <laughs> in, in December two thousand three, you got hired as president of creative affairs at DC Comics. Uh, senior vice president, I think it was. I think it was senior vice president of creative affairs at DC. Yeah, I had, you know, obviously I was a comic book fan growing up. And while at Silver, we'd actually developed a version of Green Arrow. And so I had gotten to know the DC people, Jeanette Kahn and, and Paul Levitz at the time. And, um, you know, and Jeanette had been the publisher and legendary publisher for many, many years uh, and had handled all of the Hollywood interactions uh for a long time, but then she was transitioning to becoming a producer and Paul Levitz was coming on as president and publisher. And the one thing he decided very early on was the last thing he wanted to do was deal with anyone in LA. 
Is he still with us? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Paul's still here. He's uh, teaching uh, at Columbia, actually. Um, uh, in New York. Yeah, in New York. Wow. In New York, and doing and doing a lot of editing and some writing and all that. God, kind of I haven't stuff. spoken to Paul in many, yeah. many, many years. No, he's uh, he's great. I mean, he. Uh, yeah, I had a lot of. And one of my one of my favorite Paul memories was actually um, ending up at dinner at a sushi place on Sawtell with him and Neil Gaiman and Roger Avery, and Roger and Neil were working on Beowulf at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we're sitting there, and Neil and Paul are actually the same age. You would never know it looking at them, you know, because Neil looks like you know a rock star, and Paul looks very much like a kind of a staid you know university professor, mm-hmm. and. Um, but but Roger and Avery, Avery and I are just sitting there listening to these two guys go back and forth about comic books in the 50s, 60s and 70s and different storylines and editors and, you know, who drew what. And we were like kids in a candy store. Just like, just like oh, this is the coolest thing ever. Pinch me, pinch me, pinch yeah. me. God, oh, my God. What a wonderful thing so, to have been a, a fly on the wall to. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So Paul and I got to know each other while I was still at Silver and working on Green Arrow. And then they approached me about the job as I was transitioning out of Silver, which is a whole other story. Another lesson that I learned about, you know, when they come to you and say, oh, just, you know, reduce your contract by three months so we can line it up with the TV deal. And then they and then they get rid of you. <laughs> um, that was fun. But uh, but as it turned out, I mean, it was, you know, uh, I I was actually really reticent at the time because having just dealt with Warner Brothers uh, on some DC properties, the idea of going into working at DC was kind of like, you know, I was like, well, I don't know if this is going to work because, you know, if I don't have any autonomy to actually develop the stuff and work on the stuff, if if the TV group and the feature group want to own everything that we bring in and we're not working on it i don't know if that's something i want to do and uh you know but i was assured that that would not be the case and you were there for quite a long time you were there until 2011 so yeah it yeah. must have I, i'm assuming it was the case you you had all the autonomy. no I, I no i had no autonomy over time i i uh, oh. what i had was it was a was a very thick skull uh that that was very good at bashing at brick walls uh and uh unfortunately um no it was it, it's it's i mean it's a really long discussion about some of that stuff but um you know what i can say is um you know i loved working at warner brothers during those years it was a really great time to be there in terms of the movies that we put out you know and i got to play on you know dark knight and batman begins i mean when i came in they had just finished shooting catwoman so i can honestly say that i had no piece of that movie <laughs> way um uh you know and on the animated side cuz I, I ended up you know part of it was creative affairs so it wasn't just features and tv but it was animation it was um ultimately you know some gaming stuff and interactive stuff any anything that had moving characters based on our stuff i had i touched on in in some way um and I think part of the reason that Paul hired me at the time was because I was obviously comic book cognizant and 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 knowledgeable, but I wasn't a diehard DC fan. You know, he knew that I was a Marvel fan, so he knew that I could look at the DC stuff, understand it, have a deep understanding of what it was and how the storylines worked, but also um, be very straightforward in where I thought, oh, this this we can change, this can be adapted. No, this is sacrosanct, and this is a sacred cow that you can't touch. You know, um, 
And um, you, you know, had I perspective. Believed, I had perspective. And I think I had really good instincts of what fans would accept and what they would not accept. And, you know, as we know, whenever you adapt a story, things are going to move, things are going to change, you know, and you, you have to have, uh, I think, an understanding of the material to know where the flexibility is. When did you, two questions, when did you first realize the autonomy promise was bullshit? And second, what would you have done with your autonomy? Well, I'll answer the second question first, which is, which is look what Kevin Feige did. He, I mean, the, the only difference, I mean, Kevin and I were basically hired more or less at the same time. He was actually a couple of years earlier on the X-Men stuff, et cetera. But the, the biggest difference in how he was allowed to approach his job and I was allowed to approach my job is the people around Kevin Feige said, hey, this guy knows his stuff. Let him go do it and figure it out and let him go make us some money. In my case, it was like, oh, Gregory really knows his stuff. How do we keep him out of the way so we can do what we want? You know, and, and let's call him in when we need him, you know. Um, and so I, I, I sort of knew it right away because I'd already been working with Warner Brothers a couple of years. I knew I knew the executives on the feature and TV side. What I was betting on um, and did work at sometimes was my relationships with them and my passion and my understanding of the material and also the fact that you know, I knew that they were going to focus on Superman and Batman, basically. And I also knew that that DC had this ridiculously large library of non-superhero things, of things that had nothing to do with Superman and Batman, that were just as viable narratively, that were that had just as much value in terms of being uh, adapted for film or for television or animation, what have you. And that's where I focused my energies. Um, and, and I focused my energies also on the animated side, because when I came in, the the video the the DVD group or the home video group I should say um, you know they were doing things like you know Batman versus Scooby Doo and Superman versus Frankenstein and it was all aimed at little kids and then and the sales numbers were anemic and trending downward and they didn't know what to do are they you know and and I was sitting there going like hey you know who liked animation me you know at that time you know whatever it was thirty two year old me right thirty three year old me or something you know saying saying hey you know and people like me, nerds like me, like animation. <laughs> and we, you know what we want to see? We don't want, and, and they'll watch the kid stuff because that's all that's there. But you know what would be really great is if we could do the stuff that's based on the storylines that we like, you know? And um, my entire uh, dream in Hollywood always was like, people say, what do you want to do? I say, you know what I, you know what I want to get to in my career? I want to get to a place in my career where I walk into a room and I say, this is what I want to do next. And people say, great, go do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't yeah. that be awesome? That'd so be cool. But well, the, 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 but the Batman guess, was one of your was it came out of of your which oh the Batman the animated show yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. that 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 happened while I was there absolutely that was the next iteration after uh, they did the Justice League stuff and and uh, and they later did Batman Brave and the Bold I mean cool I have to give a series what a cool yeah those series. were cool I mean I have to you know give really a lot of the credit to you know obviously Warner Brothers Animation and their team and Bruce Tim and, and Sam Register who ran it for a long time and and uh, before him uh, Linda Steiner who was there I mean. You know, all we did, I mean, I, I can't take credit for the, you know, the design of those shows or the feel of those shows. But what I can, you know, uh, you know, take some pleasure in, certainly, is when they brought us those concepts of us at DC being like, yes, this is the way to do it. Because we had seen a lot of stuff that got killed, you know, for various reasons. Um, that was good. That would have been great, you know. And, and so things like that, things like the early Teen Titans animated one before they did Teen Titans Go, 
you know, a lot of that stuff, I think, had we not been supportive, would not have happened the way it happened. But that, um, did, did, did you have any relationship at all with uh, Ben Melnicker or Michael Usland? Yeah, Michael Hughes, yeah, I, very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ben, I met a few times, you know, uh, and always very pleasant to me. Uh, but Mike, Michael Usland, I know very, very well. Um, you know, and uh, I, I actually look up to him because, um, you know, his deal on, on Batman and the DC properties is really, um, re really one that should be taught in law schools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way that he managed, you know, the way that he managed to basically hang on to those rights and, you know. And well, I think a lot of that had to do with Ben. Oh, yeah, certainly. Ben, you know, Ben, Ben was the vice president uh, of MGM. Exactly. Um, under... Uh, the guy from CBS a uh, hundred years ago, when yeah. I first came out to California, I was working at MGM music with Mike Curb. Oh, wow. And so every three weeks I had to go to the studio. I had an office on sunset near La Brea. I have to go to the studio and meet with the people at MGM. And Ben Meldiker was one of those guys. And, wow. and I, I wanted so much not to be a financial guy and not to be in the music side. And the only guy that would really listen to me and talk to me was Ben Meldiker. Oh, wow. And I foolishly decided I have to go back to New York and go back into theater and, and start again. I probably should have said to Ben Melnicker, I don't, I'll take no salary for six months. Let me just work for you or for somebody that you think I could learn from. Right. Um, years later, when I made Constantine and Ben, Mel ben Melnicker was one of the executive producers of it. Yeah. And he was not, like 94 years old. Yeah. They said to me one day, do you know who Ben Melnicker is? He wants to come to the set. And I said, are you kidding me? I, of course I know Ben Melnicker and I want him to come to my set and I will, you know, I will take very good care of him. And mm -hmm. we did. I mean, yeah. I waited on him hand and foot and we, he recalled meeting me, you know, 25 years earlier wow. at MGM and saying, you know, look what you did. You're now, you know, producing Constantine. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was, it was, it was sad, you know, when I think back on it, that I didn't, make more use of my relationship with Ben, Mel ben Melnicker when he was in power and when I was looking to figure out what to do. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. Yeah. But, he, was, but he, was, he was a great guy and he was so knowledgeable and so smart. That's the thing. I mean, I remember like yeah, meeting him. Um, there's a, there's a few people over the years, you know, where, where I've met, where I've met, where I've just been so impressed with them. I mean, this town, you know, it's, as we know, it's the cliche, you can start in the mailroom and end up running the studio, but there's, there's true value in that institutional memory, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is why it was kind of sad to see what happened at Warner brothers the last few years when they got rid of all these people who really had, you know, a hundred years worth of knowledge. Right. Right. And then of course, when, when uh, Zaslav came and starts hiring some of them back, <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh no, we need to know how that deal worked. You come back. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I've always believed, I mean, and, and I, you know, um, you know, especially, you know, growing up with my dad and, and sort of seeing how he interacted and understanding. It's like, I always look at like anyone that's been around in this business longer than me, let me hang out with them and see what I can learn yeah, and yeah. figure out, you know? Um, I mean, I think it's part of why you and I got along initially, Gil, is because I was, A, obviously I knew who you were and I was a huge fan of you guys and Tales from the Crypt and everything. But, you know, I mean, as you, as you know, Alan, like, you know, Gil just comes across as like, you know, competence and intelligence personified. Like you just know that things are going to work out if Gil's around. No, I, <laughs> you, you, you know, even, even in the darkest days during our estrangement, uh, because of anything else I would say about, about Gil, I would say he's an amazing producer because he knows if you've got a dollar to, to, to make your movie, 
don't spend a dollar one. Mm-hmm. And if you can do it for 99 cents or 98 cents and make it look like a dollar one, even better. And you meanwhile, know, in my meanwhile, I'm trembling in my pants every time I'm thinking about how I'm going to spend, whether it's a $2 million picture or a $200 million picture. I still have the same problems and fear and concerns. And my, I remember, I remember Constantine. That was that was a fun one because it was such a good script. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and as my, and I, and I'm a huge fan of Keanu's. Uh, though having him cast as obviously as John Constantine was rather was controversial at the time. And sure, you know, even for me as a fan, it was a very difficult thing to take. You know, like changing it to L.A. from London and all that kind of stuff. But it was like, okay, well, we're making the movie. But it was such a good script. It was so well done. But for me, the part of me that that really kind of rankles was really, and you'll remember this, Gil, was was dealing with the coda, with the tag at the end, and how the studio wouldn't let us do what we all knew needed, how it needed to be. Yeah. And they just wouldn't let us do it. I wonder and, what they're going to do with the sequel. I hear that they're going to make a, a another one. Keanu's agreed to do it. Yeah. And Francis has agreed to direct it. And I, ju- I just wonder what they're using as a script. It'll be interesting. I mean, yeah. I would hope, I would presume that James Gunn will have some sort of oversight over that and be able to steer them in the right direction. I mean, there's so many phenomenal Constantine stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. But I was, uh, <laughs> I just remember seeing Keanu at the premiere uh, party afterwards and uh it was like one of the most you know and he re- like we'd met a few times on the set you know and i didn't expect him to remember me but he did he's like oh you're the dc guy and i was like yeah yeah and and uh and 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 um and, he, and i was like man it played great the movie really played great and he like throws his leg up it was like there was like a banquette and he and he puts his leg up and he's like it was constantinian wasn't it you know? <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> He's um, one of those guys that, you know, I, I've only worked with him that one time, but he was such a sweetheart. I yeah. mean, he's so easy to work with, very down to earth, you know, listen yeah, to what another, I have to say. Another total pro, you yeah. know, another total yeah. pro. And, and 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 also just his his enthusiasm was kind of infectious, you know, yeah. it's it's real, Yeah. you know. But yeah, no, that was, that was uh, that you know, that was a wild one. I mean, and that was like sort of the, I guess, I'm trying to remember if that's, if really, if it was Constantine where I met Akiba for the first time. Or if we had already been working together on stuff, yeah, the Akiva DC Comics relationship was was interesting. How how so? Well, he's a huge fan, right? Mm-hmm. He's a huge he's a huge comic book fan, mm-hmm. and and certainly knows a lot. Certainly, you know, like many comic book fans, he knows the era that he grew up with and collected. You know, and, and as far as he's concerned, and, and again, he's not alone. Um, that's the era that matters, right? <laughs> you know, he tend to love the one that you grew up reading. Um, and so he had very definite ideas about what he could and could not, or what he, what should and should not do. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and sometimes he was right. And sometimes he was wrong. I mean, the good news about working with Akiva and his company at the time was because he was a fan, he was very open to a lot of the stuff that I was pitching, you know, a lot of the non-traditional DC comic stuff. So whether it was, you know, hundred bullets or, you know, whatever it was, um, getting, getting the studio to then buy in was a whole other, yeah. you know, other scenario one of the fascinating things about and again you, you certainly you encountered this at dc is man the different iterations the different worlds as mm-hmm. hey a last time marches on uh, how how do these characters accommodate for that fact and all the different iterations of the dc was it the first earth earth one right earth one earth two all that stuff yeah, yeah the the 
all the different uh gosh the, the, what's the term i i, I the uh, uh the the retcons mm -hmm. the just to to account for okay we're, we're changing the rules everyone's going to agree yeah 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 okay cool but you've now changed the rules right and, and everyone's fine but it's amazing the resiliency of sometimes the old rules well, I mean, you know, it's something that we would actually tell filmmakers all the time when 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 they would um what regardless of the property, right? You know, they're like, "Oh, can we we want to change this or that." And we're like, "Okay, it's been that way in the comics for 75 years yeah. or 50 years or 40 years. And it's been and it's and it wasn't a whim when the writer came up with it originally, you know, you know, just sake of argument, you know, you say Iris Allen, you know, she's a journalist. Well, we don't want her to be a journalist because Lois Lane's already a journalist and there's 15 female journalists in the DCU. So why does I, why can't Iris Allen be a nurse? Well, now you as a filmmaker coming into this fresh might think small deal. Everyone, Lois Lane's already a reporter. I don't need another reporter. I don't want to do a Lois Lane copy. I want, so I'm going to make her a nurse. I can understand that argument, but then you're like, but, Iris Allen in the in the comic books has been, you know, the the launch point of these 55 different stories, you know, because she's a journalist and it feeds off of this thing with Barry Allen and it's intrinsic to their relationship and, da, 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 you know, and, you, you know, Iris West until Iris Allen. Um, and, and so you start, um, you know, so you, you sort of have to explain that over time why, you know, yes, maybe it feels like a small thing to you. But ultimately, even to the audience that knows nothing about Flash and nothing about Iris West and nothing about Barry Allen, something's going to feel off. Something's going to feel a little, you know, a disturbance in, in, in the universe, a disturbance in the universe. Well, I'm sometimes very surprised at some of these filmmakers because, you know, the one thing Alan and I did and made sure we did was that with Tales from the Crypt, we didn't we didn't care as much about what the partners said or their minions and development or even HBO. We cared about Bill Gaines and what mm -hmm. he thought, mm -hmm. and and our whole whole objective was to make Bill Gaines proud and happy of of our of our TV show because he and his dad created it. And yeah. you know how what are we to do if we were to make a show and the guys who created it hated it but, or didn't because, like what we because did? Because it, it wasn't just stories and characters. There was a spirit. Yeah. There was an essence, and that's the thing. Just like your love for comic books, it captures the world in a very particular way. That, I don't know, checks off all the boxes inside your head. You go, you you see the world the way I do. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. And to be able to, as you have also experienced, to be the the carrier of that torch, it comes with heavy responsibility if you're taking the job seriously. I hope you see Absolutely. responsibilities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would tell people this all the time. Like what DC allowed me to do when I was at Silver Pictures with Green Arrow, I would not allow me to, myself to do when I was in the job at DC. Mm. <laughs> you know, the changes that I made to Green Arrow when I was at Silver, which were all, by the way, as a way of countering Smallville and figuring out how do we play in a different, slightly different sandbox, yeah. you know. But, you know, once I was in the job at DC, I was like, I would never let, I would never let myself make those changes. Not in a million years. Yeah. Um and one of the things that I did at DC, you know, prior to that, you know, and, and really, you know, I guess I have to probably I have to give it more to J the credit goes to Joe Rowling and uh, and Harry Potter for the original creator actually having some agency in their work. 
as you guys know, prior to that, you option, you're a novelist or a creator, you option it to Hollywood and that's it. That's the last time that you hear from them, right? Maybe you get a premiere ticket if you're lucky, <laughs> you know, if you had a good agent, yeah. you know, if you had a really, really good agent and a son of a bitch of a lawyer, you might get a royalty down the line, but, uh, you know, don't, don't bet on it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Hamlet and, has a happy ending now. Dude, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Right. And then, but then with Joe Rowling, all of a sudden it became, that's when studios started to realize, oh, these people have their own fan bases that are very vocal and, and we can, and we can uh, figure out how to, if we can harness that and get their positive, you know, feedback and energy, then we're in good shape. And, and, uh, and certainly on the comic book side, no one gave a damn at the studios, you know, what, you know, what the creators and the, and certainly not the, you know, most of the creators, of course, in many cases were long past because these are old titles yeah. Um, and it was all work for hire at the time anyway, or, you know, there are very few, I mean, certainly to comic book fans, there's a lot of famous people, but you know, if you're not a comic book fan, there's Stan Lee and then that's about it. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and so there was, there was no thought given to, well, you know, what would the current writer of the flash or the current writer of Superman know? Why should we listen to them? And my point when I would go meet with these executives, well, the current writers of Superman, they figured out how to ref refresh this 75 year old character and, mm. you know, or 60 year old character at that point and, uh, you know, and, 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 and make them relevant to a new generation of readers. In fact, these, you know, these, this writer of Superman reinvented Superman for a whole new generation. And this one did another version that everyone said, oh my God, this is, you know, you know, whether you're talking about Grant Morrison or Mark Wade or, you know, um, you know, Alex Ross and that kind of thing. So, you know, and, and, and my job was really, um, to, I was the evangelist, right? I was the comic book nerd going into all these different exec offices, you know, with my wares um, and saying, you've got to read this and this is a great story. And this is, you know, this is one you haven't seen. Don't think comic book. I, in fact, I remember getting into a, um, it was actually a dual discussion with a producer who shall remain nameless because I don't want to slam her, but um you know, we were we were talking about a, a draft of, of a script and she goes and she goes, I don't like this draft at all. It's just very TV and very comic booky. And I, and I stopped and said, wait, wait, wait. First of all, you know, I don't know what TV you're watching these days, but it's way better than this script. And secondly, saying that this is you're, you're, you're insulting comic books and TV with this really crappy script. I think you got to reevaluate re your priorities. You know, and she really got into it with me. She's like, you can't tell me that comic book writing is good writing. I said, uh, yes, I can. Well, you yes, know, when I we can. did when, when we did Superman Returns mm -hmm. and we wanted to have Superman have a child. Oh, yeah. Um, we didn't really I didn't really care what Warner Brothers thought. I only cared about going back to Siegel and Schuster's estate mm -hmm. and finding out what the estate thought. And what they if they would accept it or not. And I said to Brian Singer at the time, you know, we really have to go back to them mm -hmm. because, again, I don't want the, the original creators or their families and estate and relatives to look at the movie and hate it and feel like we've taken especially such an iconic character as Superman and made him something that they wouldn't approve of. And yeah. so when we went, we went to the estate, we went and beyond Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. We actually went to the estate. And we sat down and we we said that to him. We said, we have an idea. Uh, we think it's contemporary. We think it helps the character, all the reasons. But, you know, we're not going to do it unless you agree with us. And if you don't agree with us, you know, we'll just stop. Mm -hmm. And we, we told them the whole story and they loved it. And they said, no, no, that, that, that just, it pulls him into the contemporary world. 
it pulls him into a, a whole new audience because younger people are having kids are having people yeah. uh, and 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 then we went to back to Warner Brothers and and we got a lot of resistance from Warner Brothers and the only way we overcame that was to say well the estate likes it very much and then they yeah. said what do you, you talk to the estate what do you, yeah. what do, you do that for and, well they were and they were in litigation at the time yeah yeah. It was heavy, heavy, heavy litigation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember that very well. I remember uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot lot of discussions. Yeah. A lot of discussions on that. When we at DC weren't materially opposed to it because we bought the um the argument, you know, about the Superman two, you know, that we lost his powers and that's when he got pregnant. Like we could like that logic was fine. The issue that we had um relative to that i'm trying to remember exactly there was like one little tweak that we needed i think that had basically had to do with the timeline or something i forget but it was um oh and i think oh and i think the bigger discussion was how do we was really editorially in terms of do we introduce it in the comics or not you know and how, and if so how because you know at various times in the comics you know there there've been you know alternate versions where superman and lois have had kids yeah. and things like that so it wasn't it wasn't you know it was just a question of how you deal with it in continuity because at that time there was a lot of discussion about how much the movies should reflect the continuity current continuity in the comics and vice versa how much were you going to use the mm -hmm. comics to draft off of the whatever the movie was doing ultimately there was very little of that right you know yeah. it was just it was much more of a normal cross-pollination. You know, Chris Nolan would read, you know, 50 different Batman graphic novels and pull this scene and that scene and this mm -hmm. thing and that thing. And you know. mm -hmm. but yeah, Superman Returns was a that was that was a saga because that was one of the, you know, when I came into DC, it was still, you know, uh Mick G. Oh yeah. You know. Well, that was you came in late because I came in, it was still uh uh Brett Ratner. Oh wow, yeah. So no, I, was... I worked with I worked with Brett for about a week. Wow. And then I walked in one day and I said, where's Brett? I need to talk to him. And they said, he's not here. And I said, well, when's he coming in? I need to talk to him. They said, no, 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 you don't understand. He's not here. And I said, what, what does that mean? In, he's in the not mafia here. sense. He's, he's, been, he's been fired. I went, oh, you won't see him around no more. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean he's been Sleeping fired? With and, the fishes. And, then, and then about 10 minutes later, I get a call from the studio saying, oh, Gil, uh, we, we've let him go. I said, yeah, I, I, what, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, we, we, we're going to make a deal with Mick G. Do you know him? I said, no. Well, you should you should meet him and, and spend some time him. with him. I said, OK, that's a good idea. And then, <laughs> and, and then and start thinking boats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and then uh, and then we started uh, working together for about a year. Yeah. I and remember. then one one day, you know, he and I became quite friendly. And he says to me, by the way, how, how do you feel if we made the movie in, in Vancouver and not in Australia? And I said, uh, I'm okay with wherever we make it. I think Warner Brothers has a problem because A, it affects the amount of money because the exchange and the value of money in Australia. And secondly, when I was hired, they, they only talked about Australia. They didn't talk to me about making it in LA. They didn't talk to me about any place else. I said, what's the matter with Australia? And he goes, well, I can't get there. <laughs> and I went, well, what does that mean? You can't get there. You get on a plane, you go to sleep, you wake up, you're there. And and then he tells me he has this thing about planes, yeah, you know, which caused the whole other uh, whole other craziness. Where I hired, uh, I, I said to him, I'll, "I'll I'll get the whole first class section yeah. on 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 uh, 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 Qantas." He goes, "No, you don't understand. I can't I can't fly." 
And and then and then I said, well, I'll get the Warner's jet. And I had to call up Alan Horn and say, I need the Warner's jet. And I mean, one thing led to another. I just and remember, I, I just remember you telling me at the time, you're like, you're like, we offered him a cruise ship. We said we would take it. I guess you guys had offered a yacht, and he's like, "No, it's too small. I'll feel too right. confined." He's like, "We'll get you a cruise ship. We're gonna get the whole cruise ship. You'll have restaurant, a different restaurant every night." I remember right. you telling me this whole <laughs> thing, and I was like, "Are you kidding me? He won't get on a boat." And I said, "And I'll go with you. My wife yeah. and I'll go with you, and you know, take a week or two yeah. weeks, whatever. We'll get it. no, no." And so, you know, so I worked with him for a year, and then after that, I he came to me one day and he says. Uh, I'm going to talk to the studio, but today's Friday. By Monday, we're going to be going to Toronto, uh, Vancouver. Right. And I said, okay, I hope you're right. But I have a feeling not Monday, but Tuesday, I'm going to be looking for a new director. Yeah. And he said, you're wrong. And sure enough, over the weekend, I got a call from Warner Brothers saying, yeah. we just let him go. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember he was agitating in the press, too. He was trying to say that you know, for such an iconic American character, it should be shot in North, filmed in North America. Why would we outsource it to Australia? <laughs> that that bit him in the ass. I mean, I like Mick G very much. I think he's actually a really good human being and a, and a decent guy. But um, yeah, we had, I mean, for us, from my perspective, our perspective, the DC perspective on that one, we were just holding our breath the whole time because we hated that script. Right. I mean, the, the version that Mick G was developing which was, you know, which he had come on to, which was like 17 versions from yep. the original J.J. Abrams nightmare script that, you know, that and it, had, it was just a mishmash of a lot of, frankly, from my perspective, terrible ideas that were absolutely in pure yeah, violation I agree with you more. of everything yeah. having to do with Superman. <laughs> and so we oh, were, yeah. so they kept, they were, Warners kept coming to us, getting us to say, why won't you sign off on the script? And, and I remember Paul saying, like looking at me, he goes, I'm like, I'm like, Paul, it's not Superman. He goes, I know it's not Superman. I said, I, so we, we yeah. were literally, literally they're holding our breath saying, we're not approving. It you, was can, like a, you can, it, you can it, steamroll us. You, you don't have to listen to us, but we're not yeah. telling, we're not giving you a blessing. It was like a remake of the Donner movie. I think of the third one, which was terrible. And it was like, why yeah, would you want to make, well, and, you then, and make then it had some really bad things, you know, like, I, I, I don't even want to get into the, plot details because <laughs> yeah yeah but you but, know when mick when mick g left finally then the following week they call me uh i tried to reach mick g he wouldn't talk to me right and i always wondered what was that all about this did he really think i was involved with firing him <laughs> Does, i th i think you know my guess is that that he was shocked that they let him go and and that and that and because you survived and stuck around that he probably did feel something he thought and he had the power of no and he did not correct right correct That's, all right you know, and very, to this day to this day we haven't spoken yeah very i mean very hard to get well i mean as you guys know whenever it comes down to the money part of it like rebates and stuff like that 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 will win out over any producer director writer <laughs> you know they'll let anybody well, go they don't care well, it's like it's I how, I think, how are we getting our money back yeah i think also part of it was he always knew as i always knew from the get-go it was australia we're making yeah. it in australia so he deceived everybody for a year i mean he should have said to them you know for straight up i can make the movie but i can't get to australia I mean, by the way, the only time that I've actually seen that kind of work uh, and actually involved is how I ended up being in Australia for like six months at one point was when they were going to shoot Gothica and Gothica was supposed to be in Australia. 
and it was right. right and i was at silver and they were supposed to shoot it in australia and they were going to use the same crews they basically used for the matrix um and uh, and then my understanding is and I, I don't know if this is accurate but this is what i remember hearing at the time was that you know Halle Berry was going to start in the movie and she didn't want to go to australia that was too far for her she had family commitments i think she had just had a kid or was you know, right something well, like you that know, you know when i finished ghost ship Mm -hmm. I got a call from Lorenzo from the studio saying, we want you to do bigger pictures, 10 pole pictures. But I also, 10 minutes later, I got a, a call from Joel saying, I have our next picture. It's called Gothica. I want you to read it. I, I know you're going to Tahiti for, for a week, read it on the, uh, on the boat and come back and we'll talk. I said, Joel, we're not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to make another little picture. I've been just, and you know, that's, that's, that's what led to our big fight wow. and our, and our break ultimate breakup. Yeah, because from Joel's perspective, Warner's does, isn't allowed to hire you. He owns right. you, right? You know, and and until such time as he's used you up and spit you out, and to you're no further used to him, then then right. no one else can have you. Right. <laughs> That's basically his perspective on it. But but they ended so they ended up moving for Halle Berry. They ended up moving Gothica to Vancouver, and and so as a make good to the to the crews and the and the locations and stuff and the studio space they had locked up in in uh, Australia. All of a sudden, the two pilots that I had sold for Silver Television to NBC and UPN, all of a sudden, were shooting them in Australia. Like we'd been budgeting Toronto and Vancouver, right. and I was trying to figure out how I was going to fly between both and figure that out. And then all of a sudden, I was like, "Nope, you're both going to Australia." Right. And we're like, "Okay." What was the What was the movie that he shot in the Gold Coast where he burnt down the studio? It's one of the stages burnt down. Oh. Oh yeah, it was the 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 Jaime Colette Surratt one, I think, right? And it was you're right because Eric Olson was on that one. Yeah, uh, what was the name of that movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of the dark. It was one of the later Dark Castle ones. Yeah, and I don't remember the name. I don't remember I, the studio because I remember I, when that happened. Yeah. About two days after that happened, I actually got a call from Joel, oh, and wow. I was like, "Hello," <laughs> <laughs> and he goes. It doesn't even say hello. He just says, I just want you to know it's your fault. I said, what's my fault? It's, it's your fault that, the, that, the, that that stage burnt down. Because if you had been there, the stage wouldn't have burnt down. So it's your fault. You should have made that movie, you know, and, and just on and on. I'm like sitting there going, why did you call me? He just, hey. called, he just called to yell at me and to blame me for the studio burning down. He just called to say he loved you. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Just to just to show you how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> when did you know it was over at uh, at DC, Gregory? Uh, when they uh, when Paul Levitz basically what happened was in the wake of the Dark Knight being so wildly successful, there was there there was a uh, yeah that, the thing that people don't realize and then for a long time that DC Comics was actually an absolute standalone unit within Warner Brothers. Right. It was one of the DC was one of the was acquired. It was, you know, Steve Ross acquired it back when it yeah. was still Kinney Comp before he even got Warner Communications. Yeah. Right. So so DC is one of the earliest, earliest, you know, whatever you want to call it now, Warner Brothers, Discovery, Time Warner assets. Right. So it was always its own silo. So we were literally like there's Warner Brothers Pictures, Warner Brothers Television, Warner Brothers Consumer Products, DC Comics, yeah. <laughs> you know. And um, in the wake of the Dark Knight being so wildly successful, all of a sudden there was basically a feeding frenzy at the top brass of Warner Brothers, everyone wanting you know DC to be like in their unit. And instead of that happening, what they ended up doing was kind of diffusing it among many different units, you know. Uh, and and when that happened, and Paul basically retired from Warner Brothers, 
Um, uh, you know, there was a scenario where I could have stuck around, but it would have been very much like a glorified kind of librarian position as opposed to what I had been doing. And they, and 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 um, and I can't say anything terribly. They treated me very well or decently, not very well. They treated me okay, <laughs> you know. Um, and you know, certainly decently well. You know, there were things, and and but it was just it was just time. It was it wasn't going to be what I was what I wanted to do. I really wanted to trans to to really be more active. I mean, because again, I was looking over at what Kevin Feige was able to do, and look, super smart guy, talented. You know, but I think even he would say that really his his um, you know secret mojo is that he's just a huge fanboy and just loves the stories and wants to be able to tell these stories. Mm -hmm. And that's all I wanted to do. And that's all I was doing internally. But I wasn't empowered in the same way mm -hmm. that he was. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was a lot of bashing my head up against a brick wall. And I was just sort of done doing that. And I could tell that in the new iteration, it would be even worse. What did sci-fi uh drop in front of your nose that yeah so i so i left dc i left warner brothers and i was like i am not going back to an executive gig i am just going to start producing i have all these you know properties and ip in my back pocket that i've been collecting that i'm now going to go and put together and get out there and i know that there's a I, you know, at that time, I felt that there was a real opportunity in that sort of 12 to 25 million dollar genre movie range, you know, mm -hmm. to do things like Chronicle and stuff like that. And that's where I was like, you know, felt my sweet spot would be. And I get a call from Universal and Sci-Fi and they say, hey, we're, we're going to launch this new feature division where we're going to, you know, focus on genre people. Uh, pieces, you know, ideally based on IP in that 10 to 25, 30 million dollar range. And I said, Oh, wait a minute, you're gonna pay me to do what I was gonna do on my own anyway? Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. I'll, I'll do that. That's, that's great. So I mean, that that was a fantastic thing. And I came in and I, uh, and I co reported into both Universal Pictures and to sci fi channel. Um, and the thing at that time was there was a lot of kumbaya because um, Comcast had just bought Universal. And so there was all this thing of how do we cross pollinate the brands? How do we cross promote? You know, wouldn't it be great to have sci the sci fi brand on a feature banner, you know, on a feature release? Um, so uh, everyone was saying all these great things. And, and, I, and I was like, that's fantastic. And then what I, you know, another lesson that you learn is when you go into a dual reporting structure particularly when one is in television and the other is in features, guess what? They may not always be aligned. Mm. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, and then like literally three weeks after they announced sci-fi films as the genre division for Universal Pictures, da, 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 Universal Pictures goes ahead and makes a separate deal with Blumhouse. <laughs> um, and we were like, oh, okay. That's interesting. And by the way, all credit to Jason and, and his group. They're fantastic and they make great stuff. But it was like, for us, it was like, oh, oh, so what are we doing exactly? And, uh, you know, and then after about a year, you realize, oh, the feature side just keeps kind of killing our stuff or they keep stealing our stuff, which happened a couple of times, you know, stuff that we had brought in and all of a sudden we're not producing it, even though we had developed it, you know, Um yeah, so that that ended, and that's when I was like, I can't go back to the executive ranks again. You mm -hmm. would, uh, you were working alongside Mark Stern, 
Yeah. Uh, who I, I've had a, a long relationship with. I, uh, Mark was one he of He was a boys. trilogy. You probably knew him as yeah, a trilogy. Yeah, a yeah, trilogy. For, and, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I first met him back then, yeah. Yeah, when I was, uh, I spent a couple seasons on The Outer Limits. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I even, Mark and I wrote a script together. While, oh, wow. Uh, and I, I really, I, I enjoyed Mark. I, I Mark's a really I, smart guy and a yeah. total fanboy, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I enjoyed working with Mark. He's prickly in the way that, that creative people are. Mm -hmm. And a, a creative person who's also creative as an executive. Yeah. So he, he's got, he's like a doctor lawyer. Yeah. In that he's got those mixed skill sets. But, yeah, no, uh, I always got along very well with Mark. I think he's really smart. My only, um, not even conflicts or issues, is just, you know, it's more, less on the creative side than on the executive side. You know, he was, but, you know, he was in between a rock and a hard place when I was there as well. I mean, he was sort of in an impossible job a lot sure. of the time. So, yeah. but, uh, yeah. While you were at Sci-Fi, did, mm -hmm. you, did you ever have any involvement in a project called Bloodsuckers? Doesn't ring a bell. A uh, guy named Matt Hastings. Uh, oh, I know guy. Matt Hastings. Yeah, uh, Canadian director. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, yeah. this was Vampires in Space. Oh, I mean, I, I, I've always, I've been a fan of Matt's for a while. We would always meet. So mm. it's very possible. That Matt's up, but, very, I, but I would not have been, I, I was doing purely feature stuff. So I would not have been involved. Right. Matt's a very personable guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was in, in, in out in the wilderness, looking for some way to, to break back in, Matt was a big fan of Tales from the Crypt. And he had a show, a touchy feely show called, uh, oh, I forget what it was. Uh, I forget what his, he had a show on the air and he he was looking to change his because that wasn't the stuff he was a fan of he really liked sci-fi he liked horror mm -hmm. and so we sat and we came up with this idea called bloodsuckers for a series of you know vampires in space and uh sci-fi loved it mm -hmm. and uh we began negotiating and a six-week negotiation took six months matt wanted to direct it which i don't think that was the uh, a deal breaker but mm -hmm. I don't know. He, he, he just strange deal points. And by the time we closed the deal, sci-fi no longer wanted it as a series. They had, they decided they were going to do a series of late night movies, Saturday yeah. night, you know, like drive-in movies. Mm -hmm. And we were going to be one of those. Well, the budget for that was not the budget that we had, you know, that no, we had started. Making, they were making those, some of those they made for under a million. Yes, they did. And uh, this one, uh, you know, originally we developed it with Coot Hayes, with uh, mm. yeah. those guys, yeah. and uh, uh, kind of Ed Olson was part mm. of the, the the development. And it really, but over the course of of the six month negotiation, everyone just lost their fucking minds. And Coot Hayes, ultimately, when it became a, a, a uh, you know, what's the change in your pocket? That's the money we're going to make bloodsuckers with. Uh, Coot Hayes were gone. I think Andrew Stevens' company had taken it over. Wow. And they were they were getting everyone to defer their salaries, and I think the 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 the, mm -hmm. the money for, for the script had gone from a a crap number to a, a, a really a sub crap number, and Matt clearly his whole thing was this was his directing, right piece and and you know to Matt's credit he was very single minded about it and don't get in his way because fuck you, right and uh, everyone was deferring I was I. I had spent that money. <laughs> I had spent the money that I thought I was going to get really. And as yeah. sometimes we do. Yeah. Uh, and they, when they said, you're going to, first of all, I had to take my name off it. Jeez. Because. Oh, it, cause it was, it was non-union. Non-union. Yeah. 
And so I, I said, well, I can't have my name on it. So I think I, I might still be a consultant on it. I think so. But no, I, I wrote that fucker. But my name is not on it. And uh, when they tried to get me to defer my salary so they get into production, I said no. And they made me come to the production company in Beverly Hills. And they were having a production meeting. And I walked into the production meeting right in their boardroom, just as like they wanted me to. And the check was at the very end of the table, at the very far end of the room. So I had to go past everybody looking at me like you're the motherfucker. And it was like for $6,000. Right. It was like for a pittance, a pittance that I said, no, because if I defer it, I'm never going to see it. And I, see then it. I get nothing. I don't have my name on it in any way. Matt Hastings gets everything. Yeah. Which, hey, you know, from my point of view, Matt, you're a motherfucking son of a bitch. But, I get, but from Matt's point of view, hey, he got what he wanted. And in this business, that is the beast. Uh, By the way, the, the key point about, in terms of the uh, illustrative part of what working in Hollywood is like, they're tell, they tell you, defer the money, defer the money, because we have no money in the budget. But come to our Beverly Hills office <laughs> for the production meeting, <laughs> where we'll have a check for you. Like, how many times, right, they keep saying, we have no money, we have no money, and, and somebody's driving off in a Bentley, you know? I mean, I remember, I remember after uh, after The Matrix um, Reloaded came out and, uh, you know, and it did big money, but it didn't do what Time Warner had projected. I mean, Time Warner had basically projected some huge, ridiculous number and, and put it in their accounting. Right. In terms of what their, you know, their year long plan or whatever, the, the LRP, whatever they call it. Um, but and so it came out and did a lot of money, but not quite what they expected. And so Time Warner goes on a hiring freeze. Mm -hmm. Right. It goes on a hiring freeze because they're not seeing the money. And 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 Joel drives up on the Warner lot in a brand new Maybach. <laughs> like the day later. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's that split screen that, that uh, oh man, it's not pretty. It is simply no. not pretty. So uh, you left sci-fi because mm -hmm. once again, the promise was not being fulfilled. The promise was not fulfilled. And, you know, and, and look, I, I, uh, I take it on myself too. I, I am, I'm a much better producer than I am an executive. I think the things that work for me as a producer, you know, passion, drive, you know, desire to, you know, creatively mm -hmm. collaborate, you know, th those are all terrible skills as an executive. Those, you know, passion doesn't, passion only gets you killed as an executive. <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. I, it, you, you really have to be iron uh and like a, a paperweight yeah yeah and you, and you have to know and this is i still haven't learned this lesson you have to know when to let go of something you mm. have you know, within particularly within like the executive ranks the studio ranks mm. you know you, you just have to know there's sometimes some projects for whatever reason you know the forces that that are arrayed against you are just too mighty and and the confidence you might have in yourself that you know you can overcome them may be misplaced <laughs> your nose for material has led you since then to some really cool places are you to uh, george r r martin's wild cards yeah yeah still uh, sitting at universal just one of those long-term development kind of things Cool, you know? cool project. Yeah, that's one of those. I've loved that one since I was 15. I first read the book and I said, someday, this is one of those projects. We all have those, right? Ah, yeah. oh, someday I'm going to make this one. 
And, uh, and I was lucky. I, I became friends with George when I was at DC Comics, I think primarily because I was such a fan of Wild Cards, which is why I wanted to meet him. I hadn't, when I first met him, I had yet to read the Song of Ice and Fire books. You know, they'd been sitting on my shelf for a while and I always wanted to tackle them, but just hadn't gotten to them. And, and so when he and I first met, I spent our whole lunch talking about wild cards. And I think he liked me because for, I'm like, like not asking him about Game of Thrones and all that stuff. And, uh, and so, and then when I left DC and I left Warner Brothers, I actually became attached as a producer to wild cards before I started at sci-fi mm-hmm. uh, with Melinda Snodgrass, who was the co-creator of wild cards. And, and, uh, and I got to know her as well. And she was a veteran Star Trek, the next generation writer and, um and 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 she and george had co-created wild cards and she was at that point sort of the point person while he was off trying to figure out um you know the books and uh uh you know and um game of thrones hadn't premiered yet by the way when i was attached and so i became attached as a producer and then i ultimately go to sci-fi and i carved out wild cards from my from my sci-fi deal because for obvious reasons i was like i'm probably going to walk this one right in (laughs) which is what we did and we ended up setting it up while i was at sci-fi and then ultimately you know for the various political reasons we didn't really go forward the way we wanted to uh the plan always was to adapt you know it was initially a feature deal with a tv component but given the nature of the property which is a wildly um expansive you know, it's it's a superhero universe as created by George R. R. Martin and his friends. So it's gritty and it's sexy and it's real and there's no capes, you know, mm-hmm. very, you know, uh, and it's got a great premise of how it all sets up the universe, you know, which is what I fell in love with at the time. Um, and uh, and so so uh, we set it up. We've had several drafts. We've had several stops and starts over the years. The saga of Wild Cards is a um, is several podcast episodes just on its own because there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of stuff but currently um still sitting at universal we hope to make it someday not sure what the current appetite in the marketplace is for generating you know new superhero style universes i do think that from a narrative perspective from a storytelling perspective we're now in a place and have been for some time where the idea of superheroes or superpowers anyway it's just another arena Right. It's just another mm-hmm. arena, you know, um, to tell a story. in. You know, it's not even its own genre. It's not even, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, superheroes. It's just like it's just like Westerns. It's just like, you know, it's 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 its own freaking arena. You can tell any story you want. Love story, romantic comedy, thriller, noir story, whatever you want, you know, within the confines of that uh, 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 of, of those of, of those elements. So um, I always think there's a there's even though some of the Marvel stuff has gotten a little tired and, and, you know, a little too diffuse and, and the DC stuff, which is just heartbreaking to watch and you know, as someone who was there to sort of see what, what I knew we could have done, mm-hmm. you know, like what I, you know, what I knew that we had, what I, you know, the things that I thought that we had in the hopper that, you know, had we brought them to fruition would have been pretty fantastic versus the things that they've done in the last few years on the feature side, we are kind of like, Oh, really? You know, some did some good things not terrible things and some stuff where you're like, what are you thinking? Hmm. Or a lot of stuff, I should say. If we're being honest. If we're being honest. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff where you're like, you spent that much money and, you know, and they decide they want to work together because both their moms are named Martha. Really? That was the line you settled on, huh? 
they, they, they should spend that money on things like Astro City in, oh, instead, yeah. yeah? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yes. Astro City, one of my favorites. I mean, I'm not uh, technically involved in that one these days, but uh, but I was certainly. It set that up at Fremantle at a great yeah. draft from Rick Alexander. And um, Kurt Busiek was just a, a, I mean, I love Kurt, super talented, you know, and all and the art in those books. I mean, I think Astro City is one of my favorites 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 why why do you love it oh because it's it's this really you know it's it's told from a you know it's a real grounded way of looking at superheroes and it's really in most of the stories not all but certainly are, are very very human and very and again i mean what, what kurt does in astro city is what i was talking about before he tells every kind of story within the confines of that universe um and so even, such a, even non-superhero stories absolutely in fact the best stories are all told from basically the man on the street perspective of what's it like to live in a city where buildings crumble because there's an alien who attacked it, you know, or, or, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, the boys play, I mean, what's interesting about watching the boys on prime is even though tonally it's the absolute opposite of what Astro city is, but it plays very much in the similar sandbox of what's it like to really live in a world, you know, that has mm -hmm. people with superpowers in it. If you don't have superpowers. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. What is the, what does that world look what like does that from, mean? from the from the ordinary citizen perspective? Yeah, and, and, and I actually think it's I think these days it's an oddly relatable feel because we're living in a world where we're seeing you know massively wealthy people do things that and, and live in ways that the rest of us really never will, you know. And with, but we, yeah, we're all affected by what they do with huge events really washing past us at a at a breakneck pace. It's really crazy. Right. I, I yeah who who do we have to fuck in this town to make to make that project happen yeah or fuck over okay well, we'll do that too uh you then ended up at uh, Paramount Plus yeah I was at Paramount um over this last uh, year and a half for yeah. a while uh you know which again you know I sort of you know with the pandemic and everything I was like oh do I really I mean I should figure out a way to, like maybe there's a way to go back to the studio and I've been very interested in the international space um last few years in terms of both storytelling you know I, I get I get attracted just where 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 are the cool stories being told you know where where are there interesting ways to you know put together a show that you know um maybe we can't do quite as traditionally you know do something interesting and you know what Paramount was doing um noisy out there what Paramount was was doing was that um they were at that time they were really expanding the the uh, the streamer and they were really expanding, you know, internationally and they wanted um, someone to come in who, you know, cause I, you know, I speak French and I've, I've worked a lot internationally. So they wanted someone who obviously understood the U S business and how the streamer worked in the U S but who could interface and interact with all their international partners and the different uh, and, and the different production elements around the world. Cause they had actually rather extensive infrastructure. And so that was a really exciting opportunity to come in. I was like, wow, they're building the streamer. They're getting really aggressive. We can really do some interesting things. You know, my purview was everything outside of uh, outside of the continental US. So I even had Canada, I had Australia, I had, you know, Western Europe, obviously. Uh, and so I was meeting with all these different teams and seeing all the different projects. And, you know, the idea was that we would have things in three different buckets, you know, just low pure local language and stuff that was more pan regional and stuff that would ideally work its way back into the U.S. on the U.S. streamer. So all this was really, really exciting. Um, but, uh, you know, basically, as we've seen, you know, with Paramount, they've been going through some changes. 
and some processes and some uh, transmogrifications. And so it just, uh, I ended up spinning my wheels a lot, you know, where it was, you know, there wasn't no one, we weren't really making decisions on what to do. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, uh, you know, basically you, you sort of the, the, the whole structure of the organization kind of changed from, uh, from under me where I was at the streamer and I was doing creative original programming and, you know, theoretically had a development budget and, you know, some say in green light when it, when, uh, those, the powers that be who run the streamer within Paramount decided that the streamer itself should not have development budget or green light authority. <laughs> that instead it should come from the other divisions. And so that kind of made me a bit redundant. So uh, I've been hanging out. What do you want to do next? Oh, anything but this, I think. No, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm still working on my projects. I have, I mean, the, the irony is that projects that I kind of put on the shelf when I took the Paramount job, because, you know, I, I didn't want to have any conflicts um, are still very much alive because we've had strikes and everything went on pause for a whole bunch of time. And so stuff that I was worried would kind of dry up on the vine is still, you know, very much accurate and good. And, and then uh, I had a couple of projects that got um, returned to me in the big Warner brothers write down purge. So um, that was kind of exciting because now they're back to me and with no strings attached and that's <laughs> nice. So, uh, and then I'm, I'm working on my own podcast to talk about, you know, my years at DC um and all that so talk um, about your talk about your podcast let's uh, uh what, what okay when, when did you start your podcast i haven't started it yet i've just oh, okay. i've been building it i've been building it i've been uh i've been just trying to figure out my stories and my elements and how i want to put it together and it's, i think i'm going to call it um you know strange tales my life in the dc universe we are very happy to share whatever we know about this this Thanks. this is a wonderful space to be in podcasting Thank you. I'm excited for it. I mean, people keep asking me about my stories and, and you know, I've told some over the years. And I, thought, I thought I should really just collect them all in one place. And, Dude, you know, and, we, and uh, we've yeah. just spent an hour and a half just scratching the surface. Yeah, I'm scratching the surface. And what was there was fan fucking tastic. Oh, thank you. you. You know, I I you are you're a fountain of storytelling gold from a podcasting perspective, especially. Well, well we all have a lot of, we all have a lot of scars in this business and that tends to lead to some stories. <laughs> exactly. Exact <laughs> all. I will, exactly. I will, I will, I will share one Mark Stern story, which was very funny when, when at the time, because I had carved out wild cards from, uh, from my deal. Right. And then, and then it did get set up and obviously I had, you know, removed myself from any decision making in that process that was all mark in the power in the feature group to decide whether they're going to put it in development right but they do and then i'm pushing okay well now that it is and it's carved out of my contract let's get my producing deal done and it dragged and it dragged and it dragged and it dragged for like almost a year and finally i went to mark i said mark you got to get this done i mean this here's my contract here's the project here's what we discussed here i'm already doing this stuff what's going on he goes he looks at me he goes have you been You've been kicked around and hurt a lot in this business. I'm like, yes, yes, I have. He goes, oh, okay, because because you seem like really nervous that this won't happen. And I said, I'm glad that you've never had the experience of being fucked over. But in my experience, when you don't have the paperwork, you're gonna get fucked. And sometimes, even when you have the paperwork. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> Indeed. Uh... Then it's like then it's like, okay, you may have paperwork. Who's your lawyer? Because they better be really expensive and scary to us, or we don't care. 
this is not a business for the faint of heart. No, and certainly not for anyone who's not an instinctive optimist. I think that's incredibly, <laughs> incredibly true. It will serve you well. You have to see the struggle and not the vicissitudes. That's correct. You have to, you have to be able to shake it off or you, or you just start crying all the time. Uh, yeah, and uh, there's no crying in, in this baseball. That's no. Sure. Uh, Gregory, I thank you so much for, for taking, gosh, the, the the time to talk to us today. I, like I said, I, there's so much more to, to talk yeah. about here. Yeah, you 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 are a podcast. Go for it. Absolutely, <laughs> well, go you. for it. And like and and I absolutely we we mean it. We're we're happy to help you and with oh, whatever fantastic. limited knowledge we've acquired over a couple of years of doing this. Uh, you're a natural, uh, it's, you're, you're doomed to success, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I really appreciate the support. Look, I'm a huge fan of you guys and all of your work. I mean, Gil and I have known each other forever, and I have just the, the utmost, you know, respect, and I feel privileged to call him a friend. And all I hope for is, like, when do we get to work together again on something? Yeah, we'll have to work uh, on that. We'll, have we'll just to have to work on, work that. on that. Well, exactly. you know, it's it's that's something that uh, maybe that's a, a whole other conversation. Yeah. In, and in for itself. those and for those out there, you know, who don't know you guys and don't know Gil, you have to understand. Like, I worked with a lot of different producers, you know, line producers, creative producers, producers never been on a set, you know. Um, and there's there's really very 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 few people like Gil. Who can do it all who can sit there and have a real creative conversation know exactly how to tell a story know exactly how to fix a story who can fix it on the fly when all of a sudden you were supposed to get a helicopter and what showed up was a vw bug and figure out how to fix it and make it work and uh and then and then and do it without um you know screaming at people or pulling out a gun and threatening people he just does it although, just, although that works better i think it, <laughs> it, can, it can work faster certainly yeah. at times <laughs> it'll sure quiet a room yeah. <laughs> or, or it's failing that you can smash your hand on a table. That's a whole other story. Oh, but thank you guys very much for the opportunity. Thank I you. really appreciate thank it. And it's so, so great much. to speak to you guys. And, uh, and I'll, you know, I've been listening to podcasts. It's been really enjoyable. I love just caught up on the Dark Castle one, which I thought was great. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks and, very much. And, uh, and thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrible Crypt content.